0: Welcome to Film Grain, the official podcast of the Film Society of Northwestern Pennsylvania and the Greater Erie Film Office. This week, our guest is film producer and local leader in the arts community, Jackie George. I'm John Lyons, filmmaker, teaching artist, and director of programming for the Film Society of Northwestern Pennsylvania.
1: I'm Erica Berlin, the executive director of the Film Society of Northwestern PA.
0: I'm Mike Berlin, Erica Berlin's husband. (laughs) Hi, I'm Sosi. I am
2: owner and producer at Retro United, Inc.
1: All right, everybody. So today's guest is Jackie George. We're very excited to have you, Jackie. And we know you've got a really interesting background. Um, and are doing some really cool things in Erie right now. So let's just start off by hearing more about
3: you. Tell us where you come from and how you ended up in Erie. I am originally from Erie. I grew up here on the Lower East Side town, went to East High School, a graduate, proud warrior, a proud lawyer, and then um, went to Edinburgh and graduated from Edinburgh. And at the time I was at Edinburgh, There were three things that women could do they could become teachers nurses or secretaries and i said i don't think so (laughs) (laughs) so i was very lucky to find dr bob wallace who was teaching a directing for tv class and he kind of took me under his wing because he saw what i wanted to do and uh, his class kind of changed my life knowing that i've always wanted to do film even as a little girl funny story. I lived, our houses abutted backyards and it was Vinnie Marchant. I don't know if you guys know who Vinnie Marchant was. He was the stage director at the Warner Theater for about a hundred years. And his daughter was the same age as me. So on the weekends, we would walk up to the Warner, walk through the French street door, go through all the props and set dressing flats, sneak down the steps to the side of the stage and watch movies the entire weekend. So it was kind of my first Foray into the escapism of film and also the fascination of how how are they doing that and why are they doing that and how did that happen? So that's kind of I think as a young child. I always had this in me um, But it took a while to get there.
1: So tell us about your experience with your professor. I mean, what kind of projects did you work on? How did he encourage
3: you? Did you do any projects here in Erie? I think I took his class in my senior year. My college roommate and I, she was a singer, guitar player, songwriter, and I was a dancer. And so we got to direct each other. I mean, if we ever found those tapes, they would be very, very laughable because you have to remember it was a very long time ago. But Dr. Wallace actually... He just encouraged us to be ourselves and to, you know, we were hippies back then. It was a completely different world. It was so innocent, and yet we thought we were so outrageous. And so he just encouraged us to write, produce, direct, and star in each other's projects. So she started mine, I starred in hers, I danced, she sang and played guitar. And it was probably something so hokey and silly, but it made us feel like superstars. Oh, that's great. Did you exhibit the films anywhere? You know, he I don't believe that he did. And when I came home this past time, unfortunately, Dr. Wallace died. And I asked Edinburgh if they thought they still had them in the archives, because I thought it would be absolutely fascinating to watch my you know 20 year old self but I don't believe that they still have them
0: I got to meet Bob when I came here as a student briefly and yeah he what a warm uh individual and you know he he had quite a personality and I was just gonna say like Miller Hall is still standing I don't know if your class was in Miller but
3: I can go over to
0: Miller and break in and see if it's in see if your stuff's in there is that where
3: the tv studio was Yeah, yeah, that's where we filmed. Wouldn't that be fun? Oh, my gosh. I know. I I, That would be a lot of fun to see it. But, you know, it'd probably also be cringeworthy. (laughs) (laughs) So to make a long story short on my trip to Los Angeles, I moved there in my mid 20s. Um, after living in Boston for a while, I was married at the time, and my husband graduated from Berkeley School of Music. So we said New York, l a, and then we decided l a, let's go get some nice weather. <laughs> and um, here's here's the lunacy of, you know, being from Erie and but having a vision, having a dream, having a passion. I just decided that I was going to go to every movie studio and give them my resume. <laughs> With absolutely no experience whatsoever. And I did. And I never heard from anybody, right? <laughs> so what does one do? You become a bartender. Uh-huh. And so I did. I became the first female bartender at the Sheraton Universal Hotel. And all of my fellow bartenders were all from Thailand. So they spoke no English. And it was me. But at the time, Sheraton Universal Hotel kept everyone at the hotel that was performing at Universal Studios. And so people like the Eagles and Willie Nelson, they all came and stayed there. So they were all at my bar. And I just found it fascinating because I was like, I'm serving, you know, Willie Nelson a shot of tequila. And all of of these fantastic performers came. Telly Savalas was actually living in the hotel and his mom was living there too, Mama Savalas. And it was really a trip because all of a sudden you just think, well, these are the people I want to work with. How do I make that step? And uh, it took a couple of years of serving some serious Mai Ties. and finally, one day, there was a, a British gentleman staying in the hotel, and every day after work, he would come to my bar, and he would order a Heineken, very heavy uh, British accent, but like very sophisticated, you know, uh, monogrammed cuffs on his shirts, and wasn't much older than me, but he just seemed like he was he was 50 and I was, you know, 25. And after a couple of months, he said, "You um, seemed like a smart little cookie lovey. He always called me lovey. And he said, well, why don't you come and work for me? And I said, well, what do you do? And he said, after work, I want you to come next door at Universal Studios, go to the Alfred Hitchcock mixing room and just come in. And I said, you know, because you know, when you're young and stupid, you say, okay. And so I drove myself over to Universal and they left a pass for me. And John, you will understand this walking into the Universal Studios mixing sound room. It was enormous, you know, bigger than a football field. And they had the three mixing booths, you know, sound, audio, playback, all music. And I watched this in fascination and they were, they were editing Best Little Whorehouse in Texas with Dolly Parton and Burt Reynolds. And I couldn't leave. I just stayed there for the whole night in my chair watching this. When we were finished, he said, well, what do you think? And I said, where, where do I sign up? And I, at the next day, I gave my notice at the bar. Peter called to me. His name, was, his name is Peter McGregor Scott. And uh, he said, we're going to work. Show up at this address. And I said, what am I doing? And he said, you'll see when you get there. And I walked in and there's Peter with Cheech and Chong. And so my first movie was Cheech and and Chong Still Smoking. Oh, man.
0: That's awesome. And
3: I, of course, went up to shake their hand. Hello, Mr. Cheech. Hello, Mr. Chong, you know. (laughs) How did they respond to that? They just chuckled. You know, I was young, a young, cute little redhead. What did they care, you know? And and I just remember asking them if they wanted coffee because I thought maybe that's what I'm supposed to do, get them coffee. And I'll never forget, Cheech didn't want any, but Tommy did. And I said, well, how do you take it? And he said, honey... I'm married to a black woman obviously i, I take my coffee black too, and I, I was like I was so stunned. I was so stunned by that because I thought was I offensive was what did I just do? you know, so that was my first foray into film was I did two cheech and Chong movies back to back, still smoking and the Corsican Brothers. I have to tell you, try being a kid with no film education, no background in anything. And walking into these you know we use these production office to prep and to edit because they were filming in europe both films were done in europe and so i got to work with the uh, sound guys the editors and didn't have phones or even fax machines so everything was telexed and i had to learn how to use a telex machine it, it was really crazy there were also many 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 tears because i'm a perfectionist i'm a virgo i want everything to be perfect and so they would they would send me these messages and make sure that you know back then they were shooting they were editing on moviolas and and uh, what was the other was it uh, not it was before the avid it was a moviola do you remember the other name of it john the other editing machine back in the steambacks
0: the steambacks right? steam
3: no right. it was something i just remember that and i remember calling an editing house and i got tears in my eyes be, because i was like i have no idea what you're talking about like do you want how many reels do you want and how much of this and I said, I have no idea. So I sat with the editors and they gave me about an hour conversation about what everything was. And I thought, what a great way to learn though, you know, no film school, you know, just Dr. Wallace's class. And so I, I learned by just being persistent and inquisitive and being not afraid to ask questions, pretty much.
0: I mean, choosing this bar was that part of the plan because you know you oh, were a close I truck didn't even the know year.
3: about I didn't even know about it. I think there was an ad in the paper. I was working at another bar and I found out that the Sheraton was a union hotel, so the wages were good and you got, you know, vacation and holiday pay. So no, I had no idea that so associated with Universal Studios and the amphitheater. So it was it was a lucky guess. And I have to say, I think meeting Peter, who unfortunately died a couple of years ago, was probably the greatest moment of my life because he saw something in me that I never saw in myself. Like I knew I wanted to do it, but just sitting at the bar and watching me, I don't know what it was that he saw, but he saw it and he, you know, he, he mentored me for many, many years. We did so many films together and it was Probably the greatest mentorship anybody in the, their life could have had, and I owe everything to him. I think you said you're
0: a Virgo, so you're probably uh, I know. You can I was tell just that you were say probably that. very organized, so and organized. you made the perfect drinks, probably. You know? <laughs>
3: yes. And your birthday is coming up. I just had it. You just but, had it. <laughs> but, it's, but it's also I'm a neat freak, you know. So all of that, he probably saw all of that, and he was very. Um, British that way you know everything was neat and tidy in his life so maybe I don't know but he he was like a big brother to me and uh the most wonderful thing about him is everybody you know in Hollywood everybody thinks everybody's doing everybody right and never once in the 30 years I knew Peter did he ever ever make an improper move, pass, touch, anything. He was a true gentleman, which I can't say is true for everybody out there, but that was a lovely, safe place to be. The age I am at now, which
1: is 40, essentially, um, you forget how your role, so Peter, for you, was a mentor, and he was very intentional about it. I think that we our age, like my, Mike and, you know, John and Sosie and you forget that we are mentors too. You know, right. I think about this a lot in my life. I used, to, I used to work in a mentoring program and I realized you can intentionally mentor, which Peter obviously did for you. He kind of said, you know, you're somebody that I think is going to be really successful and I'm going to help you do that. And then there's the other type of mentoring that probably John in particular is doing every single day, surrounded by college students, surrounded by crew. And I'm sure, John, that you never even think, I am mentoring these kids. Like, I am making a difference in their life. I am educating them and giving them opportunities because you're just doing it. But that role that you have is so powerful, right? Because there's Jackie, you know a testament to decades of having someone in your life that, that really does help you become who you are. So I applaud any of you who are intentionally mentoring and unintentionally mentoring because obviously, Jackie, that first opportunity can change
3: someone's life. So that's Well, me. and I, I think the important thing that all of us need to do, and I'm sure we all are doing it, is that we need these kids. I'll call them all kids coming coming forward into the arts to believe in themselves as much as somebody else may believe in them. And when I taught my film class at the downtown YMCA teen center this before COVID, you know, everything's before COVID. My first thing with the kids at the teen center was I see you, you know, because they wouldn't look me in the eye. They and I don't know if you find that at all John in teaching or any of you do with teaching. But, you know, mainly the teen center is a predominantly black young population, and I needed them to know that I see them, I hear them, and that I want them to succeed, if not as much as I did, more than I did. And it took me a while to get there with them, but I think it's the most important thing to do is to let them know that we see them and we hear them and we want them to tell their story as well.
0: Yeah, that I mean, that's beautiful. Uh, the way you put it, Jackie. It's and it's it is so important. You know, they have stories to tell and it's giving, you know, helping them um, build up that confidence that, uh, you know, people want to hear your voice. Your voice needs to be heard. You need to represent, you know, whatever boxes people want to put you in. You know, it's it's important um, to share your experience and, yeah, to use the arts to do that. You know, that, that they have that power. They have that voice. And,
3: um, and I also think since I grew up in the inner city and I went to a very integrated school, you know, went to East High School, there was a passion and my my dad was a coach at Gannon and also a an athlete in Erie and all three of my brothers played professional sports here. So I went the other way. I went the complete opposite. I went into the arts. However, growing up as I call it in the hood, you know, my hood down here, um, nobody met me, you know, with my dad, you know, ballplayers would come over of every color. We just, it was never that thing in our house. So in meeting these kids from the teen center, I, I had to work my way into them very quietly. But I remember one day I was just sitting there doing some paperwork and they were talking and one kid got, ner- got the nerve to come up to me and he goes, you know, Batman. And I said, what? And he said, somebody told me, you know, Batman. I said, <laughs> i know the george clooney batman and he goes you really you really know batman (laughs) i said yeah i I worked on batman and robin i i said but my batman was george clooney we don't know no george clooney we just want to know that you knew batman and and it just kind of laughed and it broke the ice with all the other kids so i mean you have to take those little moments and laugh with them laughing at you laughing at them kind of a thing and after that, you know, they were just like, "Hey, Miss Jackie." You know, it, I was cool after that because I knew Batman.
1: Okay, let's talk a little bit about Batman and okay. <laughs> some of the other uh, other characters and other films that you've worked on. Um, your list of credits is pretty long. Yeah, I'm um, lucky.
3: Do you want to talk about each each role sure. that you played, and then well, yeah. yeah, when I first started with Peter. I gave myself the credit as his assistant, assistant to Peter McGregor Scott. And that was on the first two Cheech and Chong movies. And then as I started, uh, I'm trying to remember what I did. I don't know anymore what I did after that. But then I worked up to production coordinator, which is almost, it's its a couple of steps down from producer, but you're working with the nuts and bolts, the key crew, making sure everybody's where they're supposed to be, flying the cast in, talking to the agents, that kind of stuff. And then as you work your way up, i I never was really a production manager because that was a... I don't know, I don't know why I didn't do it. I went right to producing. Um, My first producing credit was in 91, I believe, and it was on a Steven Seagal movie, Out for Justice. And I remember I was location scouting another film in Seattle and Peter called me and said, Lovey, I need you to come back to LA. We're working on a movie. And I said, which one? And he said, Steven Seagal. I said, I don't even know who Steven Seagal is. And he said, don't ever tell him that, you know? (laughs) And so he, of course, said, no, come on, come on. And I said, well, I'll make a deal with you, Peter. I'll come back to L.A. if you allow me to be a producer on the project. I have no idea where I got the nerve to say that. But I thought, what the heck? The worst he could say is no, right? Mm -hmm. And he said, all right, I'll give you an associate producer credit. And I said, it's a deal. And I flew back down. And so that was my first foray into producing. And it was... uh, It was a heck of a ride because Seagal's, he's no easy piece there. He's, uh, when we filmed in the Bensonhurst area of New York, of Manhattan... And there are probably more mafia and guns on that set than I've ever seen in my whole life. Everybody was a, you know, everybody was somebody's Goomba on that movie in New York. And then we finished it in LA on the sound stages. So that was pretty interesting. I was looking at my own credits today because I don't even remember my, my chronological rise here, but I, I saw that I did Die Hard Two and Dick Tracy back to back, which were two formidable films, just Die Hard Two. We were looking for snow. If you remember, it's Christmas and it's snow, and we had to move five times because every city we went to, it's the hottest winter we've ever had. <laughs> and, and of course, who gets the two a.m. call but me, because I'm the travel, I'm the production supervisor, and I just remember once saying. There's no way I could travel 250 people overnight. So Fox, it was a Fox film. So I called the head of Fox and I, he rented us a, our private on the 737 and got everybody on that to get to finally Moses Lake, Washington, where we finally shot the film. You can never, ever let them see you sweat, right, John? I mean, I was just
0: going to ask, okay, I was just going to ask you about that. I'm like, do you have no fear? Because like, I, have so I much mean, that's fear. a, that's a highly stressful environment and if you're going up the ladder to you know <laughs> coordinating and producing and i mean yeah. I'm I'm just fascinated listening to this story. So was that something like Peter made you comfortable in, you know, having a voice at the table, like taking on more work? I mean, because a lot of people, they feel like, you know, Hollywood is like Fort Knox, and you, you can't look anybody in the eye and you keep your head down and you just play your role. But
3: I think a lot of my perseverance came from my father. My father was the child of immigrant Italian parents. My mother was the child of immigrant Russian parents. So I'm half Russian, half Italian. So I think I probably got the stubbornness from my mother and the perseverance from my dad. And I remember my dad saying to me, there's nothing you can't do. And I'm not going to try to be graphic here, but once he said to me, you have, you have more balls than all three of your brothers. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so I think I yeah. kind of ran with that. And I think you have to remember when I got into film, there were not many women. So I had to make myself known that I wasn't just, first of all, eye candy. So I fought really hard about that. I wanted to be smarter than I was. I wanted to be um, calmer than I was. And so inside I was probably ready to have a nervous breakdown, but you never let them see you do it. Because you have to be that calming presence around people or else then everybody, it, it rolls downhill, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, because most of the time the director's having a nervous breakdown mm-hmm. <laughs> because he can't get his shot or it's raining and it's not supposed to rain. So you as a producer have to say, okay, let's move that shot to an interior porch seat. You know, you have to come up with these creative solutions to try to keep everybody happy. Somehow I believed that I could do it. And maybe I was trying to prove something to myself and to my parents that I can do it. You know, I was the girl, but and my brothers all succeeded, and my mother thought I should become a teacher, and I didn't want to. I wanted to be in the arts, and I think maybe it was the only way I could do it was to just keep climbing and keep pushing.
0: Did your um, parents or or family members get to ever come out on set? And what did they think of, you know, that whole environment?
3: My mom came to L.A. all the time. She just loved it. She loved being the queen of the castle out there because I would bring her to every set. My father came to I was uh, filming Richie Rich uh, in Asheville, North Carolina at the Biltmore Estate. We were saying that was the Richie Rich house. And my brother lived in Greenville, South Carolina. So my parents drove down, and the whole family came up. And since my dad was a baseball coach, Reggie Jackson was there that day because he was playing Richie Rich's private baseball coach. So my dad got to meet Reggie Jackson, and he signed a baseball for my father. And when we broke for lunch, I just remember my dad saying, "You're in charge of all of these people." And I said, "Sometimes, (laughs) yes." So they were flabbergasted and proud, and and. It made me very happy for them to see what I did. This is just a quick story of
1: mine, but I know exactly what you mean when everything is spinning around you and you yes. just realize you're the person that has to take take it on. And speaking of winter, I, I and two of my work colleagues were stuck in Buffalo for three days because of this storm that they called The Knife. This was in 2017, maybe it was 15. There was this horrible storm we were supposed to be getting on an airplane and the car got stuck on the highway. There were people you know, not knowing what to do. We were in the car and I'm like, look guys, we're calling the the hotel we just passed. We're making a reservation. We're getting a bunch of stuff together and we are hiking through this snow because we are not staying in this car. The snow is falling. It's coming up to the door every time we open it. We're gonna get stuck. We're going to get that hotel room. And because they were just like paralyzed. They were, what do we do? What do we do? And like, this is what we do. And I realized that it's just a it's, I don't know if it's a skill that you hone or if it's just confidence. You know, when you look around and you're like, everyone's expecting something to happen. Well, I guess that's gonna have to be me because no one else is stepping up. And then you get in that habit of it, and then you just be the person who bosses everyone around.
3: (laughs) And that happens over time. You can blame for being the control freak, but it's like, you're not really, you're just trying to keep it calm. I remember once I was filming for the Disney Channel, I was producing the first Cheetah Girls movie, which of course, all the young girls know the Cheetah Girls. It was a huge book sensation and it was a, a biracial singing, dancing group. And Raven Simone was the star from That's So Raven. We were up in Toronto shooting Toronto in the winter, which was supposed to be New York in the summer. And so we had to CGI everybody's breath out of their mouth, you know, all that stuff. And on our big finale, we shut down two whole streets in Toronto. I'll never forget. My gaffer came up to me and he said, we have a problem. And I said, what's that? And he said, there's a huge thunderstorm coming our way. And I said, how long do I have to shoot? And he said, I don't know. And I said, well, let's get going. So I told the first AD, we got to go. We got to go. I mean, it's the huge finale. It was a big song and dance routine, which is hard. And, you know, it's kids and dogs. Okay, great, you know. And all of a sudden, a lightning uh, struck one of our huge um, Moscow lights. And I just said, that's it. Cut, go, everybody. And we were all out in the rain. I was pulling cable. I don't even know how the hell I was doing it because we were all soaking wet, you know. And I'll never, so I had to call the studio and of course it was Disney and they're, they're, they're tough and I'll never forget. They said, well, what are you going to do? What are you going to do about this? And I said, I don't know. Let me get the equipment out of the rain first, get the kids home, the dog back in its kennel. And then we'll talk in the morning because it's 3am, you know? So I think you're expected to know how to do everything if you do it right. And that was a that was a tough one. So the next morning, obviously, I reconvened with the production manager and the location manager, and we figured it out how we could do it. But those are just crises that you can't let anybody see you freaking. I don't think I slept for two days after that, you know, because I was trying to figure out how am I going to save this movie? Um, so it's a, you know, it, it all goes with it, doesn't it? Well, good for you. I know that there are
1: some people on this podcast right now who... In particular, love Dick Tracy. Am I right, Sosie?
2: <sighs> Let me get comfortable. I've been waiting for he him.
3: has He has some opinions to share with you. Please do. It's one of my favorite films that I've ever worked on.
2: All right, number one. It was the best platform to give us later down the road Sin City. As soon as I started watching the film as an adult, the fight scenes, the cinematography, and everything... I was really missing out when I was watching it as a child. $46 million was the budget with that cast. How the heck did you guys do it?
3: I'll tell you how we did it. It was Warren Beatty. And I've never met anyone smarter. I've never met anybody more driven. I I really think he's a brilliant genius. He's he's, He's kind of, he's a guy that if he sees, like if he was watching this right now, he would see this thing right here behind me. That's what he would be focused on. And he'd say to John, I need you to find out where that painting is from. So he wouldn't be focusing on us. I mean, his his brain is such a constant moving target. And because he was Warren Beatty, you know, he, he produced it. He starred in it, he directed it. And nothing got past him. Like you could never bullshit Warren Beatty. If he asked me a question and I didn't know it, I better say, I don't know. Because if I made something up, he would call me on it in a second. I think Madonna was originally, you know, that was originally her. He just called Dustin Hoffman. He just, he called Al Pacino. They were all pals.
2: Mumbles. It
3: was crazy. It was crazy. And the coolest part is that was we filmed that on the back lot at Universal, and we had huge production trailers. Even though it was a, a Disney film, we shot it at Universal. So I had we had the production office in my trailer. So there was a huge lobby, and then there was my office was the first one. This is such a great story, and every day Madonna would drive herself. She had this little black Mercedes. And she would always hit my trailer. <laughs> she would always run into it. I'd say, well, Madonna's, Madonna's here. I'd call, you know, Madonna's here. Let, them, let the set know she was there. One day she came into my office and just said, can I use your other desk and phone? And I said, sure. I learned from that woman so much about being a strong, independent businesswoman. I mean, she was 32 years old. She had chutzpah like I never saw in my life talking to agents, talking to managers, saying, I'm not doing that. Boy, was she smart and driven, and she knew what she wanted and what she didn't want. wanted. But I, but I have to say my favorite probably was meeting Al Pacino. Being a half Italian girl, I'm going to say.
2: <laughs> I did not know that he was in the movie until I was an adult. When I went back and looked, and I'm just seeing all the faces as the movie progressed, it was like, I had to ask you, how in the hell, and you already answered it, but how in the hell were they able to corral all of these legends for one movie that would probably be impossible to do now on a budget without feeling like you're going over? Like, it was so impressive.
3: I think the other important aspect about Warren, he had his producer hat on all of the time, and he hired... The, for me, one of the most brilliant cinematographers in the world, Vittorio Storaro. And when he, mm. when he flew in, he flew in two of his crew and this enormous lighting board from Italy. He got together with the production designer. All of these people are legends. Richard Silbert was the production designer. Milena Canonero was the costume designer. Barry Osborne was the producer who was, went on to do all of the Lord of the Rings movies. But Vittorio set the tone that if this is a comic book, we're only going to use primary colors and watching these great people sit together and collaborate on color schemes and lighting. And I, it was, it was unbelievable to me. I learned that was like a master film class.
0: Real quick. Sorry. That lighting board is actually really famous because Fellini used to use it yes. in uh, in Italy in Sinecetta, which is a very famous uh, film studio in Italy. We're referencing one of the, all time legend DPs and stuff like that. He is legend. just amazing. I I can't believe that they actually flew this in, like the lighting board over. <laughs> that's well, amazing. that's it, incredible.
3: <laughs> well, Disney said no, and Warren said yes, and guess who won? Warren,
0: poor well, <laughs> <Fort laughs> baby. Yeah, yeah, also a legend. Uh, but t- But here's
3: here's a fun story about that. So Vittorio found out I was half Italian. It works sometimes, right? So they befriended me, and they took me out to dinner at least once a week and they would speak, you know, Italian, and I didn't understand hardly anything, but he, I was like, became like a little sister to these guys from Italy. I don't even know how it happened, and when he left, went back to uh, Rome, he signed an autographed uh, book that he gave me of, of his that he wrote about cinema, so I still have it, and I mean, it was, you know, it's, those are things that you just never forget in your life, and it, and that was a film that my mom came on, and there was one day when she was on the set and she was so nervous. And I said, just don't talk, just please don't talk, mom. When they say rolling, that means you can't talk. Don't sneeze, don't do anything. And Warren, I don't know if you remember the little boy that played boy with the red hair. They weren't getting his hair, hey. they weren't. Yeah, they, his, his, I'm trying to remember what his name was. I have it written down somewhere. But they were, they were hey. saying to get his hair right. So Warren said, Jackie, get over here. And they went like this, this is the color we want. And my mother, my mother swooned, you know, Warren Beatty just touched my daughter. It was, very it was very, very cute. And then I want to tell you one more story about Dick Tracy because this one was for me, it took my breath away. I had to go through a couple of the sound stages to take some paperwork. And as I was going through one of the sound stages, I heard the most beautiful music that I'd ever heard. Um, Stephen Sondheim wrote all of our original songs for Dick Tracy. So I walk into this room and there's a piano and it's Stephen Sondheim, Mandy Patinkin and Madonna playing and singing the songs they had written for the movie. And I just stood there for a half an hour and listened. They didn't even know I was there. And then I quietly walked past them and I just said, you just saw something that you'll never, ever see again in your life. So those are just moments where you pinch yourself and say, you're a very lucky little east side eerie girl. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's amazing. I ha- I have to ask you, I would, yeah. I would be kicking myself because I'm, you know, huge Batman guy. We have JJ J. Yes. J. Hodges yes. uh, on the podcast here soon, and he's a huge comic book guy. So yes. Batman and Robin when it came out so
3: controversial
0: so controversial and I was like a Batman Robin apologist my my friends were not fans um but uh I, I thought you know what he was what Schumacher was going for you know I I I get what he what he was going for but that movie was like over the top like so neon you know you got the bat nipples and all the crotch shots and every and all the latex and the rubber and everything what about
3: the nipples yeah do you have
0: do you have any batman and robin stories i'm curious i'm curious
3: I i do have a couple so that was when peter called me to come do batman and robin he was producing it alone and he said This movie just took on a life of its own. And he said, I need you to produce second unit. And I said, well, how big is your second unit? And he said, over a hundred days. And I said, your second unit is a hundred days. And he said, and it's almost all nights. And I said, seriously? That, okay, let's go, you know? So I did. It was very interesting because Joel Schumacher, who we just lost again, you know, a couple of years ago too, was so flamboyant. He was just flamboyant. And I remember he would come from sometimes from first unit to our unit and he would have a a flowing jacket on it hello ladies you know hello Georgie hello Arnold you know he was just lovely and sweet but he knew he knew the cod pieces were over the top he knew the nipples that was what he wanted to do and Warner Brothers didn't stop him. We had Mr. Freeze one night which was you know Arnold Schwarzenegger of course and he was in full Mr. Freeze regalia and we had to freeze up we had to freeze the sound stage at Warner Brothers. And he's smoking a cigar while he's Mr. Freeze. And he said, Jockey, my son Patrick is coming for lunch, you know, in his accent. Make sure the nanny will bring, you know, he was telling me. I said, okay, that's fine. I'll make sure when we break for lunch, I'll make sure that he comes to you. So Patrick Schwarzenegger at that time was just a little boy. He must have been three or four. And the nanny came in and I walked over. I said, we're almost done. We'll break for lunch. And so I said, come on, Patrick, I'll take you over to daddy. And he walked up to... Arnold in Mr. Freeze gear and he just burst out crying. That's not my daddy, you know. And Arnold's like, Patrick, Patrick, it's me with the cigar. And I he was so scared of his dad dressed as Mr. Freeze. And I just thought you know what, sometimes they just don't pay me enough money for all of this, but it was really a cute story. And I remember a couple of years ago, I got a call from the Hollywood Reporter. They did the anniversary. I think it was the 20th anniversary and they asked me for some anecdotes. So I just told them some of that stuff, you know, and it's really sad that both Peter and Joel are both gone now because they, if it hadn't been for those two guys, that movie never would have been made. It was enormous. We shot at the Spruce Goose. Do you know what the Spruce Goose is across from the Queen Mary? In Long Beach, they have the Queen Mary docked, and next to it is the hangar where Howard Hughes? How Hughes? Hughes had his oh, oh, the had his, 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 okay. his first. Hangar, screws, yes. Right? So yeah. that's what we were filming in Long Beach. So we would shoot all day in the hangar and then we would sleep on the Queen Mary ship because it was such a long drive back and forth. <laughs> so it was just, I mean, those are things that you can't make up and it's like, I don't think those will ever be duplicated. Amazing. So uh, I'm very lucky. I'm very, I'm a very lucky girl. I have to tell you that. I really am. Well, okay. So you just
1: had this fascinating career in yes. LA yes. and yes. worked on and so many different
3: projects, but how did you get back to Erie? Well, I'll tell you, um, I had a series of events. I don't know any of you that knew my brother, Minna George. She was a big football coach in Erie, both at Prep and Gerard. He died very suddenly at 63. And I came back to help take care of my mom because that was her boy. You know, that was her firstborn son. And so I came back then and stayed with her for a while. And then I said, you know, mom, I got to get back. And I went back to LA. My dad had already passed away and my mom never got over my brother's death. And when I saw that her health was going down, I, I just made a decision that I had to come back and take care of her. So I came back for a while. And then after she died, I had to make a decision. And I said, well, I've had a really great career. I think maybe it's time to do something else. And so I decided to come move back to Erie. And now I'm just doing, I'm doing a lot of nonprofits. I'm doing mentoring. I'm working now doing this Erie Dance Film Festival, working with the Downtown Y, you know, I don't know some maybe it was Peter's death too. Maybe when I lost Peter as my mentor, I thought I needed to shape up and mentor some more some more people. Give back, you know? Circle of life kind of
1: thing. That's great and it is family often, you know, that brings you back and Mike, myself, you know, having gone off, you know, it really does make a difference to come back to your hometown. It's just a, you see it in a different light. I'm sure that having your career, coming back to Erie, it's such a livable city and you just appreciate it in a different way than you did when you were a kid. Cause I'm sure, you know, a lot of us were like, Oh my God, Erie, it sucks. It's not cool. Yeah. But then when you leave and come back, you're like, man, this is great.
3: I can get anywhere in 10 minutes. I think not only that, but coming back now after kind of going full circle with my career, because I mean, I started and stopped it a couple of times when my dad was first diagnosed with Alzheimer's. I took a sabbatical as well and came home and helped my mom take care of him and then went back and, you know, started working again. But I think coming back this time, it made me really see the possibility of the arts here. And I think that there's so much talent in this city. I really do. It just working with the people I've worked with. And I know I've talked to Stuart Nash about this. You know, how do we bring productions here? And I think the biggest problem with Erie is that we don't have a large enough crew or cast base. And I think that's that's our Biggest problem here. I mean, when I had to learn about the IA and the Teamsters and SAG and all that, learn all of those rules, you realize that it costs money to fly. Even if we only brought people in from Pittsburgh, it's, you know, hotels per diem, all of that. And I think, John, by you teaching these kids the craft of filmmaking, maybe we can change that because. Erie has so much to offer here. I mean, I, every whenever I'm driving anywhere, like even when I'm driving on the east side, those old dilapidated warehouses, I think, oh my God, would I love to shoot in there.
2: 12th Street.
3: What? Yes, exactly.
2: I thought that before. I would love
3: to film in there, you know, and when you go and you see the sunsets on the beach and when you, like I love the courthouse buildings, you know, those could be anywhere USA. But I think our biggest problem is not having an IA Teamster actor core here. And maybe that's something we can work on, you know, getting some more people qualified in those positions. And maybe the young kids of Erie are the future, you know, if we can get them interested in film and the arts, something to look forward to. Yeah. We've been talking about this for years. Everything that
1: you just said, especially bringing young people, educating young people, and having relationships with local universities so yes. that students that are ready to go start their careers have a background have already worked possibly on some local films like right. PA's or whatever that they feel like this is a place they can stay and see their project come to light yeah so that that's that's a lot of really great uh, insight and uh, we
3: certainly agree with you there's a lot of potential here in Erie so yeah. and I I think too, that we, as all of us as filmmaker people, I think that we have to encourage that, you know because when i I went and spoke last year at Edinburgh at for their film classes, and there was one young lady in in there that was uh studying cinematography, and I just I had to go up and shake her hand, you know because I mean in my career, I haven't seen too many female cinematographers, and it's really great that we're branching out you know to women to people of color to Anybody, you know, anybody can do my job, can do your, we can all do it. We just have to be given a chance. And I, I don't, I don't know why it landed on me. I'm just, I feel just lucky. You know, I really do. I have the scars from production (laughs) for sure. You know, after it's over, you wonder, John, don't you? Like how in the heck did I just survive that?
1: Oh,
0: for sure. Yes. A hundred percent it's like heaven and hell. Like it once.
3: (laughs) It is. I remember filming in new Orleans in the heat of the summer and just, you know, sweat just rolling down your back, down your face. And people, I remember once the grips came up to me and said, this is inhumane. I said, what the heck do you want me to do? It's 110. I didn't decide to shoot in New Orleans. That was the studio. What do you want me to do? Bring in a rain tower? I don't. You know, what do you want? You know, and they went to the IA and I said, seriously, you're going to file a claim against me because it's hot in New Orleans. You live here. You know? So you just have to learn which fight to fight and which one to let go, don't you? Yeah, because you can
0: get bogged down in all the in all the BS, right? It's yeah, yeah it's managing. You gotta you gotta pick your battles, and um, you know it's also ther- It's being a therapist. It's it's everything, right? There's a lot of personalities on set.
3: The actress Deborah Winger once said that she believed women made the best producers because we have the maternal instinct. Because you're almost everyone's psychiatrist, right? It got to be everybody's psychiatrist. But also, I think we have that little bit of nurturing in us that, you know, I remember once my, my Shreveport, Louisiana crew was all female camera, except for the DP was a guy and he hired all women. And somebody said, all the camera girls are crying in the camera truck. And I was like, oh, my God. So I went to the camera truck and I did like a Tom Hanks. I said, there's no crying in movies. (laughs) (laughs) Ladies can't do this to me. I finally got a female camera crew. Stop crying. What are you crying about? Cry when you get home. (laughs) Stop. (laughs) But, you know, you have to kind of do that a little bit. And so you're you're wearing a whole bunch of different hats.
0: Yeah, people think it's glamorous, glamorous work, right?
3: <laughs> <aren't great. laughs> yeah, real glamorous.
2: Flashbacks.
1: You're wearing a hat of board president of, of Jack Park Dance Theater. So why don't you talk about entry into the dance community in Erie?
3: I used to dance when I was young. I remember going to Littles in Perry Square, taking dance from Catherine Little. And then when I was Edinburgh, I studied dance a bit. And I remember in L.A., I think when I turned 40, I decided I was going to study tap. So I started becoming a tap dancer. You know, it was just like, dance has always been a part of my life as well. And I've known John Mark air for a long time. When he knew I'd moved back, he approached me to be a member of the board. And then our board president resigned. And he said, well, why don't you just take it on? I said, sure, why not? So that's, that's how I became. Board president of Deaf Mark. So I'm, I've been working with them very closely. I guess I should talk a little bit about this Erie Dance Film Festival. So I've become friends with Patrick Fisher, who I think is such a formidable force in Erie for Erie Arts and Culture. I got a call one day from a woman named Tana Hunter. She's a retired ballet teacher from Mercyhurst University, and she said Patrick wants to put together this dance film festival that they will fund the first year. So I'm with four dancers. It's Tana, Mark Satilano, Jennifer Dennehy, and Carla Hughes as dancer choreographers and then me as the filmmaker. And so what we're doing is reaching out to Erie County, can be all of the county, filmmakers, dancers, choreographers, and we wanna launch next year, all COVID depending obviously, the first Erie Dance for Film Festival. And what we're trying to do is pair dancers with filmmakers they can come up with their own thematic short, three to eight minutes short. They go off and do their thing. You know, they have to be socially distant. They got to make it work, for however it works, and they will then conceptualize it, film it, edit, and then present it back to our committee. And we will then decide which ones we're going to screen next year, along with some other national, international dance for film, and have like a big premiere in Erie. So I'm reaching out to your community for more filmmakers to sign up, and they can go to eriedancefilmfestival.com. They can go to Erie Arts and Culture website. Everything's on there. There's no application fee. We will provide a production stipend to cover some of their costs, you know, so everybody gets a little paycheck, the dancers. If you don't have a camera, maybe you can rent one, you know, that kind of, it's not a lot of money, but we will be giving so it doesn't have to come out of their pocket. What we want to do after we have the premiere, we want to screen it around Erie at community centers, because it's another way to show all of Erie that there is something you can do here with your art. So we'll go to Booker T. Washington. We'll go to Schuster at Gannon. We'll go to Martin Luther King. We'll go to the east side, the west side, wherever we have to go and screen this for free so that people can see what's available. And then hopefully there'll be a continuum for the following year.
0: I, I love, love this idea so much.
3: Yeah. I love it too. And, and then um, Carla Hughes is going to, we're going to do the final final screening at the Dance Consortium. Their big event, I think it's in October of next year. Now, all of this we know is because of COVID. We're going to figure it out as we go along. But I want kids to see that, you know, we're we're accepting kids under the age of 18 if they're with a parent or guardian, as you know, we have to, We're child labor laws. But we're asking the dance makers and the filmmakers to be 18 or over. And I don't care if they're 18. I don't care if they're 80. I want everybody to apply for this because... I think some great things can come out of it, and we have a couple examples on our website of other dance for film projects, and they're very, very powerful. So hopefully, maybe some of your students, John, will you know apply.
0: I mean, I'm I'm going to tell everybody to apply, and I'm applying. I want right. to do it. I don't I don't right. care if you pick mine or not. I want to do that I think it sounds like such a great fun experience <laughs> so. Well,
3: and I, and I think too for filmmakers nobody ever gets a chance you know everybody says I want to see your reel well how are you supposed to have a reel if nobody gives you a chance to make something right. so this is an this is a way for young Perfect. filmmakers to get something on their reel so if they want to do another film this is what I did for no money just think what will happen if you give me 25,000 do you know what I mean And and I want them to have that confidence and the same thing with young dancers and choreographers. And we want all genres of dance. I mean, our artistic um, advisor is Dr. Shrelina and she teaches at Gannon. She's a professor at Gannon, but she is a fantastic dancer, choreographer of traditional Indian dance. So, I mean, I want hip hop. I want street. I want Indian. I want modern, you know, whatever it is, I think. There's no genre of filmmaking or dance that we won't accept. So I think the sky's the limit and I just hope everybody applies. We're working our ass off to get this done. So please spread the word and get some people to apply and come and do it with us. I already know there's a few people that are um, applying. Yeah. So, yeah. so I'm excited about it. So I hope you do do it, John. That would be really fun.
0: You know, it's one of those things that I never necessarily thought of doing before. I mean, I've filmed at Deathmark, but, right. you know, doing something like this, uh, I I wouldn't have thought of. So I I appreciate you guys coming up with the great ideas so that... <laughs> So that we can all have the opportunity to give it a shot.
3: Ah, yeah. uh, is thinking of trying to get the Schuster Auditorium for like a little premiere. I mean, Erie needs to have this kind of. You know, we need to have this confidence in our city, don't we? I mean, we need to know that what we do is not being unseen and unheard. Because I, I felt there was no place for me here. That's why I fled, because I knew I wanted to work in it. But we have to show them that they can stay here and still do it. You guys are doing really good things for. The young people and I don't even know if they're all young but I think we all need to just reach out to the community and, and get people involved
0: yeah just give people opportunity and yeah. um, let them use their their voice just give them the tools and the confidence
3: well and I think the worst word in the English language is can't you know I hate when people tell me I can't do it but yeah. you can you can and we just have to guide them to know that
2: they can. I think after all the times that I've encountered different people in this city, even though I like being antisocial, it's amazing to find how many different people from different walks of life have gone outside of the city and achieved things that we are unaware of. I wasn't aware of people musically, people in film, people in theater, people that have written plays, people that have been on Broadway. It's just like if a lot of people when they were younger were aware that there was a woman from the Lower East Side that has pretty much been a part of so many different films that carved our ideology of certain things. Al Pacino, he's 90% of the reason why there's gangsters in the black community.
3: Absolutely. Like
2: Scarface, Carlito's Way, Godfather. Like, if we knew that there were people that walked down the same street as us, that they've seen things that they could come back and tell us through different perspectives, the possibilities. Think about Think how much success, the, success the, city the city would have instead of just being the city, city on the break.
3: lake. Right.
2: I'm very thankful that I was a part of this podcast because I was able to meet you.
3: Thank you very much. And I was able to meet you. It's a
2: pleasure and an hour.
3: Do you want me to make you a little jealous right now?
0: Okay. Oh, dude. oh no. Oh no.
2: Okay,
3: ready? <laughs> so when we had the rap party for Dick Tracy. Al Pacino was leaving to go back to New York, but at the rap party he came up and gave me a big fat kiss. <laughs> and I want to tell you, that made that, that made my whole year. Al Pacino actually kissed me. I don't think I washed my lips for a, a week. <laughs> it was like the coolest thing that ever happened that Al Pacino kissed me. <laughs> what a moment. Yeah. I'm waiting for De Niro. That's my other one.
2: Huh. One more question. How did you deal with the scenes with Mumbles?
3: I just think that everything they did on that set was so unbelievably creative. I mean, first of all, these guys, you have to remember, they got to make up at 3 a.m. because the prosthetics were so intense. And those prosthetics artists are geniuses. But I just thought Mumbles was fantastic. I mean, I thought every character was just so well thought up. I just loved it.
2: I haven't laughed so hard as being this age and watching him laugh at Dick Tracy when he was messing with the recording. He like, ah! was just like, I can't deal with this.
3: Oh, that's what's fun about movie. making a movie. You know, I probably don't remember all the pain that I inflicted on myself in that film, but I just remember the joy I had. I remember the joy. So there's a little masochism in every filmmaker. What can I say? (laughs) Well, that's a great thought to uh, wrap up on.
1: Um, (laughs) I'll say that, Jackie, you certainly can be a resource for information. But I would say anyone interested in the Erie Dance Film Festival can go to eriedancefilmfestival.com and submit an application. You're receiving them up
3: until September 11th. Correct. And if, we, and if we have to go a little bit further, we can obviously push. But thank you so much for doing this. I was kind of nervous at first because <laughs> oh, I never did it. Oh, you're great. Yeah, you were great. You were a natural podcast guest. <laughs> well, it was great to talk to you. I'm going to meet with my next, uh, I'm going to meet with my film festival at seven. So I get a little break and then I love this Zoom thing is something else, huh? Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
3: I, yeah. I do kind of miss people, though, I do have to say.
0: For I sure.
3: I'm just hanging. Okay. Well, Jackie,
0: we will get the word out. We'll get all we'll do right. a lot of submissions.
3: Great. Well, it's great to talk to all of you. Good luck with everything. And if there's anything I can do for the Film Society, you know where to reach me. I'm Thank here. Thank you so much. Well, I got lots of energy. I'm bored. Let's go. All right. <laughs> all right. Bye, everybody. Bye.
0: That's been our episode. If you're an interested filmmaker or choreographer, remember to apply for the Erie Dance Film Festival. The application is available at eriedancefilmfestival.com and submissions are due by 5 p.m. on September 11th, 2020. Next week, our guest will be actor and host of the for Comic Junkies podcast, J.J. Hodges, to talk about the Batman trailer, the debut of Christopher Nolan's Tenet, and the state of Hollywood's tentpole films. Make sure you follow us on social media. And you'll find all of the tags and links in the show notes for this episode. Until next time, this was Film Grade.